Welcome to Candela. I'm Christopher Hooten. In this episode, my co-host Alan Schaller and I speak with cinematographer Adam Newport-Berra. Adam has served as director of photography on music videos for Kanye West, Jay-Z and others, and recently completed the feature film, one of this year's festival darlings, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. But he really broke through last year with the HBO show Euphoria, shooting the dramatic and experimental final two episodes of its first season. Euphoria is an astonishing piece of work, a portrait of millennial life in this era which featured a wealth of talent in pretty much every department. But it was the cinematography in particular that became the talk of the town. Have you seen Euphoria yet? Being a question pretty much everyone with an interest in film, TV or cinematography must have been asked by this point. We start by talking more broadly about cinematography in this conversation, before honing in on Euphoria in the second half. It gets a little technical along the way, but that's hopefully part of the reason you're here. One specific transitional shot we mentioned you can find on our Instagram where we posted it recently, which is at Candela Podcast. That's at C-A-N-D-E-L-A Podcast. Now, without further ado, we bring you Adam Newport-Berra. We're here with Adam Newport-Berra. Thanks for coming on Candela. How you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Good stuff. So I guess this must have been a pretty crazy year in your life. Yeah, it's been a really, really intense year. It kind of, uh, it was more than I could have expected and I'm super grateful for it. I mean, I was just really excited that, first of all, we could premiere The Last Black Man in San Francisco at Sundance. That was sort of the highlight of my years. That was my first time at Sundance, actually. And uh, to have a film there and in competition was really amazing. And then from there, it just kind of seemed to snowball. I ended up working on that HBO show Euphoria, did a couple episodes of that, and just all that together gave gave me a lot of momentum. And so it's been exciting. It's been a fun year. I've been really busy. And it's funny because, you know, as you progress, you get more and more opportunities. But I think we're always trying to decide what the best sort of evolution of our career is, you know. And so it's like the more success or attention you get, the more sort of picky you get. And so I feel like no matter where I am in my career, I'm always kind of feeling the same sentiments, you know, but I'm super grateful for everything that, uh, that happened this mm. year. Yeah. There's, there's nothing worse than committing something. And then another opportunity coming up that you feel might have been better comes along. Totally. And it's, it's like, oh, but no. it's, it's constantly that, isn't it? You've got forking paths in front of you now and it's like working out where to divert your time is difficult. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. I mean, a couple of years ago, I was I felt, you know, very desperate for any and all narrative work. And, um, you know, I was still I still tried to be discerning with the work that I took. But, you know, I think with any narrative project, regardless of the size or where you're at in your career is a risk, you know, and it's you want it to be a risk at the same at the same token. It's like you don't jump into any project assuming, oh, this is going to be this is going to add up to exactly what I had expected of it. And it's going to be this perfect thing or this perfect project. You know, everything I do, at least I want there to be risks and I want there to be unknowns. And I want there to be this idea that I have a vision for what it is in my head, but it could be something completely different in the end. And maybe it's better than what I could imagine. That's sort of the hope I think with any art form, especially a collaborative art form is that you're, it becomes the sum becomes greater than all of its parts. Yeah. What you just said about, uh, being discerning about the parts you're you're picking, even when you felt desperate for work or or in a in a less you know advanced stage like you're at now, uh, I think that's the mistake a lot of people make is they just commit to anything and everything without thinking about what they want to do or what they're good at doing, kind of thing. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely true, and I've you know you could definitely say that it's it's tr- it's a tricky situation though because I think for a lot of us you know at the end of the day like I provide like a very technical position on a film. It's all, it's also very creative, and I consider myself a filmmaker and a storyteller. But like I also just enjoy being on set, and I enjoy making things, and I enjoy like being a DP. And so it can be really tempting to jump onto projects because like oh this project has an enormous budget. It has all of these scenes, which would be so fun to shoot. Um, you know, you, there's all these different reasons t- to want to shoot something and it, it is tricky to be discerning, but at the same token, I think working is usually better than not working. And, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of, a lot of people say like your career is sort of defined by what you choose not to do. And I think that's really important to take into consideration, but you know, at the end of the day, you also really do need to take risks because there have been scripts that I've gotten that I, was unsure of that I turned down and then the next year I see it come out and I'm like, I was an amazing movie and I did not see that movie when I read the script and spoke to the director, you know, and yeah. part of it is maybe that just wasn't the project for me. And I feel like more and more like I'm getting these scripts and I'm like, this is a great script and I think it could be a good movie. But at the end of the day, maybe this isn't my project. This isn't the thing I need to lend my voice to. Yeah, that's like, I guess it's like a really interesting balancing act for cinematographer. It's like there might be, say there's like script A where you know that it's, you're going to get to do some really fun, interesting stuff and be able to be like really creative and do a lot of cool shots you're proud of. But then there might be another project where you know it's going to be way more of a straightforward shoot, way more kind of like naturalistic and kind of documentary style, but it's got way bigger kind of like like the the concept of it and like the the way people will think about it it will be a, it will be a bigger thing and might have more success and it's like do I go down the route of the smaller more creative thing or like you know latch onto this huge thing does that make sense yeah totally i mean i think one thing um i've begun to notice is that you know because as a cinematographer you sort of have these stepping stones of like success and also sort of like resume builders that allow you to step up you know it's a year ago, it was much harder for me to be considered for a studio film or a film that's, you know, has a $40 million budget, something big. And now that I have something like Euphoria under my belt and something else that did really well, you know, at festivals and theaters, I'm suddenly like eligible for these bigger films, which is exciting and flattering in a way. But at the same time, you start to realize like you need to be more and more careful of the people you surround yourself with because there is a lot more oversight, you know. There's studios, there's producers, the director is often hired for the film as opposed to it being the director's film. So there's all these people you have to answer to, which is just kind of the reality of, you know, a movie having to spend a lot more money to make it. Like there's just more oversight. Like I get that. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's something that you have to consider. Like the people that like, not only do you have to trust the director, but now, but you have to also trust the producers and the other people, the creative people involved and also the people that are just in charge of the money. And like, if there's like a shared respect and a shared like vision for what the film will be, that's great. But um, there's just more, there's more you have to be aware of, you know? Yeah. And that's like a pitfall, isn't it? For like some young directors is where they make like a a few really successful indie films and then they get kind of like poached to do like a really big Mm -hmm. studio tentpole movie and then maybe find that they can't be as free. And it's like a, it's a difficult thing to navigate. No, totally. And it's like, you know, I think there's like, I think there's like lessons to be learned for everyone. And I don't think that there's any right way to do it. And I see amazing directors that I admire do these tiny indie movies and then jump to a tentpole movie and then go right back to doing something really intimate and personal to them. And I think that 
it's really hard and really terrifying to be a director. Like I have a lot of my, a lot of my best friends are, you know, directors that are making small projects and I see their success. And while the success is amazing, I can only imagine the pressure they have to make the ne the next best choice. And I think you have to like, you have to be honest with yourself and understand what you want out of life and out of your art to make that decision. And I think that, um, there's no one right way to do it. And I'm never, I'm never going to be the guy that says like, fuck the man, just keep making small movies. Like, yeah, I, w I want everyone to be able to thrive and to be able to, to make cool projects. Because I think like you go and make a big temple movie and even if it doesn't do amazing, at least you have that experience and then you can go back and do take that experience and juxtapose it against something smaller and more intimate that's more personal to you and you've learned something from that. So I think it's there's really no right way to do it and I don't hate on anyone for any of those practices as long as, you know, it comes from a place of like honesty to themselves. I think that's the most important thing. And I think this industry is tricky because there's a lot of expectation and there's also this crazy sense now, I think especially in the last like 10 years, that you have to be like an overnight success. And mm -hmm. that if you have like one film that doesn't do well, you're screwed. Which is so unfortunate because I think if we right now looked at the filmmakers that we admire most, like in terms of like cinema history, like you go back and like we know the movies they made that were successful, but then you go through their entire filmography and you're like, oh, they made that one, didn't really do well, no one saw it, no one talked about it, but they got to keep making movies. And it's really hard with film because there's so much at stake that it's like, it's, it's terrifying to fuck up. But it's like, you know, I think... Herzog has this amazing quote about filmmaking being, I don't know what the exact quote is, but about filmmaking being an exercise and you're constantly exercising and you're getting better, but you're not always, not everything is a whole uh, representation of you as yourself. It's, you know, it's, it's an evolution and it's a practice that you can keep honing and keep exploring, you know? And it's like, we don't, as filmmakers, it's just the process is so arduous and so long that I think, um, it's harder for us to take those risks, you know? Yeah. And it is a lot more up and down. I mean, yeah, like you were saying, you know, you take like Scorsese, he's had films that have like been flopped or been like disappointing at the box office. Like it happens to mm -hmm. everyone and particularly mm -hmm. in, in film as well in a weird way. Like I feel like musicians often there's like a level of consistency often uh, across albums. Whereas you get in film, you get this really weird polarization where like the same director can make a fucking incredible film and then make one that just doesn't work. And I was, I've always thought that's kind of interesting. But music, totally. music back in the day was, was, you know, labels would back a band and let them kind of grow or, you know, whatever in, in the studio and, and make loads of shit songs if they wanted. <laughs> yeah. And totally. then, and then they'd back them and back them. And then two years later, they'd put out an amazing record. And that right. wouldn't really fly today. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah, it's interesting thinking why that is. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, well, I'm I think part of it is, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, continue. Well, no, no, I was going to say, I'm, I'm from a photography background and, and it's, it feels a little bit similar. Like you're about as good as the last project you're working on. And, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, the eyes uh, are on you. And it's yeah, like, no, I oh. mean, it's it's totally true. But I think with like music or painting or photography, you know, there's a certain level of like self curation that you can have, um, where you can really project what you want into the world. Obviously, you have to have some skill and you have to put the practice in, but you can make something and then say, "Oh, I don't want anyone to see that." Whereas, mm. if you make a movie, you're making a movie. Like no one's yeah. gonna be like, "Oh, that one was like not so good, so I'm not gonna release it." You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. People have spent the money and the time. They're going to release that movie no matter what, unless it's like an absolute flop. Oh, sorry, guys. Dogs barking. One second. Oh, we have, a, we have a cameo. Yeah. 
the guest appearance. What is what is what does the dog think about framing? <laughs> He's just pissed that I'm gone so often. <laughs> What's her name? Uh, his name is Zisu. His name is Zisu after Steve. Yeah. Zisu, yeah, amazing. After Steve, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow, well, I told you we had Bob Yeoman on the podcast, so there's a weird That's so cosmic cool. connection yeah. there. I know. I actually, <laughs> so I met Bob for the first time um, in Poland at Camera Image a few weeks ago at that. I don't know if you know that festival. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I was like totally starstruck by him, but he's such a cool dude. I really like him. Yeah, he's great. Amazing. Yeah, everyone yeah. we've spoken to has been r- r- remarkably chilled. Well, he's a yeah, yeah. A cool hand on the tiller, which a lot of DPs seem to be in a, in a way, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, keeping things on track. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I guess so. To to circle back, like I came across you through Euphoria. I, I just cool. I, I I watched the show really late, actually, even though it was like this really buzzy thing that everyone was talking about. I kind of right. caught up on it a few months later, but then I was just you know like WhatsApping like videos of the screen and sending it to Alan and friends. I mean, like this shot is just insane and stuff. So that's how I came oh, nice. came by it. But like, I guess it's it's interesting because it seems like it was made by a lot of younger people and people that didn't like necessarily have like this massive back catalog of big work and yet mm-hmm. the quality of it is insane and like the creativity and like there's yeah, yeah. it was just intriguing to know like i mean we'll start from the beginning of like how you became interested in photography and then and then the film but like um yeah just how how it kind of how you started out and how you got to this point where you're making this show where is a lot of real, really, really creative stuff going on. Yeah. Because we talk about photography as well on this show, like, I'd be interested to know, like, and you don't have to, like, whether you had an interest in photography to begin with or whether it was always film for you. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, so I grew up in Oregon, um, and I grew up in the woods. Like, my uh, my parents built a house on, like, an old defunct logging road in the woods in Oregon, and that's where that I grew up. delightful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was beautiful. As a kid, I hated it because, you yeah, know, of I, course. Was, I was outside of town all of my, you know, in order to hang out with any of my friends, I had to beg my parents for like a 20 minute car ride into town. And, you know, it really wasn't, it wasn't that bad. But as like, you know, a kid who's all, you know, all my friends lived in the same neighborhood. And basically I had to get shuttled into the neighborhood to hang out with them, which was always kind of annoying. But I mean, where I lived was just so beautiful and it's really informed my work and you know how i think how i see the world because it's you know oregon is very gray and rainy but it's also very lush and incredibly beautiful so you know as a a kid growing up i used to just kind of walk around the forest and kind of just space out and i really loved exploring and then i would just kind of it'd be kind of my place to just daydream and roam around and then I got a hold of my parents' cameras and just started taking photographs and then also taking videos. My parents had like a high eight camcorder to make home movies that I would play around with just like I feel like any other kid. And I it got to a point where I was kind of making my own little films and things like that and taking photographs of things. And then in high school, I started to film my friend skateboarding because I was, I was a big skateboarder um, and I still skate a bit, but like that was sort of my life for middle school and high school was just skating. So I always had a camera. I was always filming my friends and that was super fun and super rewarding. And I spent a lot of time just editing videos and it got to the point where I was like, okay, I'm getting to the point where I'm almost done with high school. I'm not really sure what I want to do. And so I started playing around and making short films and really enjoyed it. And I just really enjoyed the process of it. And at the time I was really into 
editing that was kind of my favorite part and i think a lot of kids who come from skating will sort of echo that because you're just shooting hours and hours and hours of footage and you're just finding a way to make things magical you know because you're just mm. calling through all this footage so i kind of decided that i was going to work in film and i went to nyu kind of thinking i was going to be a director i think like any kid who went to nyu thinks um and when i got there i realized that i had you know, next to no film knowledge. You know, I enjoyed movies, but I wasn't by any means like a film nerd. You know, I didn't come up with like any of the sort of like film history knowledge that most of the kids going to film school had. I just liked making things. I think for me, like the process was one of the most fun things about it was just like having a camera and making things. Um, and so I realized like as I was in school that a lot of my friends had amazing ideas, but didn't really have a lot of uh, knowledge of cameras, which I did. So I just started shooting everybody's projects and kind of helping them figure them out. And so it just kind yeah. of became this natural progression um, of making things and then, you know, convincing upperclassmen to let me like assist them on set, even though I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and yeah. then getting to the point where they were like thr throwing me work and I was just totally faking it and pretending like I knew what I was doing, but I had no idea. Yeah, not to like derail you on your story, like we'll come back no, to it, but fine. like, I, do you think like, <laughs> no, 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 not at all, but I was just going to say like, I think you're kind of like part of this generation that's like been fortunate of like, we've been able to fuck around with videos and edit stuff from such a young age Yeah, that wasn't like possible before. Like, I guess people had this, you know, they were taking stills, they had this interest, then eventually maybe like at some point in their 20s, they finally graduated to be able to be on a film set or be in the editing suite. Right. Whereas now like, and then obviously like, you know, people younger than us are now know how to like edit and filter videos like oh, on, on Snapchat and Instagram at like age yeah. like 11. So yeah. I guess... Yeah, everyone's able to kind of get like a set of film skills way yeah, sooner, no, which is a head I, start. I think about that a lot. I'm really grateful, like the timing I had coming into film, because when I went to film school, we were still shooting on film, but video was becoming and like obviously digital video was like accessible and we could do that as well. So we we're in this sort of I was actually the last class at NYU to be taught um, film with 16 millimeter film the year after ours they stopped doing any work with actual film and it was all video. So I had the, I, I, I felt really lucky because I got to shoot a lot of film in school, but also have the introduction of like using, you know, all the high end HD camera equipment. So I was able to sort of appreciate both. And I was able to, you know, take that experience with shooting actual film into the real world, because I know a lot of younger DPs that love shooting on film, but like their process for shooting on film is based off of their experience in video, whereas mine's kind of the opposite approach. And I think there's, again, there's no one right way to do it, but I feel like I got kind of the best of both worlds. Um, and now like, it's insane that, you know, like kid, like my, my niece who's like seven years old could steal her mom's cell phone and make a movie and show it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think yeah, that's yeah. nuts. And that's like a whole nother level. And I'm really curious to see how that, manifest itself in the future because to me i really love like classic film classical filmmaking and feature films but i just feel like kids are so aware of what's possible now that that's going to change and evolve you know and fortunately like the vr thing really hasn't taken off and i was terrified that that was going to take off more and maybe it will at some point dude yeah don't jinx it <laughs> i know i know and i've actually done a little bit of vr work and it's been like fairly unrewarding um, just in terms of like how you can present it to the world. But um, 
No, I'm curious to see how it evolves. I'm like, I'm a little bit afraid, but I'm also ready to like adapt to some degree. But also at the end of the day, I feel like what we're seeing more than anything is that people still love watching movies and they don't yeah. need, you don't need to gild the lily. It's really about the stories that's and the execution that's important. It's not about the, you know, changing the medium entirely. Um, what what part of the film process, like the film shooting process, do you think helped you versus uh, the digital side? Um, I think it was just being decisive, um, having a certain amount of film that you can use and knowing that once you're out of that film, you're out of money and you're done shooting. And you need to be smart about how you shoot and you need to think about it before you shoot it. That to me was really important. And then also just like getting to edit things on a Steam Deck, like actually physically holding the film and looking at it and cutting it and taping it together just gave me such an appreciation for just making strong decisions and living with them and learning from them as opposed to constantly being like, oh, I should have done this. Oh, maybe I can do this. You know, at the 11th hour, changing everything entirely. I feel like it's almost impossible to do that with film. Whereas with digital, it's like, at any moment you can completely change your mind. And I think that there's just a certain decisiveness that comes with shooting film that just creates bolder choices, you know? And I guess that that's what, you know, a director wants out of a really good DOP is, is that decisiveness and being like, this is how we're going to do it. Totally. Or, and I, or being yeah. like, yeah, it's done. Yeah. Kind of thing. And I think it's, again, it's different with every director. And, you know, there are projects that I initially wanted to shoot on film and we shot on, digital and I was grateful that we shot digital because it it allowed us to roll way more you know and it allowed us to play around a bit more you know I think shooting film versus digital like these are all just like paintbrushes and we have to choose the right one for the project you know I'm not really interested in being like a staunch supporter of a technical aspect of an art form like there's just no point like, yeah, absolutely. You know, a it's crap, just, a crap film shot on film is is a crap film. Exactly. <laughs> a crap yeah. Film and shot I, digital is a crap film. Yeah. Every, everything we do is like a cinematographer needs to serve this, the film. You know, and I think it's not about serving my ego or my brand or my sort of aesthetic. It's really you know when people ask me about my approach or like my my style or my aesthetic, like I just say my aesthetic is you know, vibing with the director and like getting into their head and speaking a common language. And that's what's important and serving the story in the film. That's like the only thing that matters. Absolutely. Yeah. And you have to be a chameleon, don't you really? Like you can't, obviously you can have your things that you like, but ultimately you've got to adapt to what they want. Yeah. And it's like, it's about, and it's not necessarily just about what they want. I think the point, the, the goal is to build a relationship where you're making the same movie. And you're just helping them achieve something mm. um, and you're bringing your own thing to it. But like at the end of the day, the voice of the film speaks through everyone and everyone is kind of speaking the same language and bringing their own, you know, point to the conversation because it's so not, it's not, it's not about being subservient as much as it is just like serving the same cause. Yeah. 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 Well, like, yeah, Euphoria has got such a, a distinct look to it. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And I imagine that was something that you had to consider before shooting was, well, I don't know how early you got involved in the, in the production. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and before, before we get there, can, can we like, we go back to where you, where you were as well and like how you came into that project and. Yeah, totally. So um, I, 
originally heard about Euphoria through my friend Drew Daniels, who's another DP, who shot Drew shot a couple of a couple of episodes of the season as well. And Drew was telling me about it and how excited he was about it when he was prepping it. We were hanging out at Sundance um, last year, or I guess earlier this year. And uh, he was mentioning it and it sounded really amazing. And he spoke really highly of Sam Levinson, the director, producer, kind of creator of the show. Yeah. Um, and at the time I had no, there was no discussion of me being involved. I was just really excited for Drew and it sounded really amazing. Um, and then I got a call that they were looking for someone for the last two episodes. And my first reaction was that I didn't feel like I was the right person for the job. You know, I was like, I don't like I had heard about, you know, they sent me like a cut of the pilot and I saw it and I was like, this looks amazing, but it's just like not totally like anything I've ever done before. And it's about like teenagers in high school with problems. And I'm like, okay, I feel like I've seen this before to some degree. But then the more I you know, watched it and thought about it. It's actually, it was pushing a lot of boundaries and it was really like creative and more than anything, you know, what sold me on it was meeting with Sam um, and talking about the show um, and just sort of his vision for it. And that, you know, he, Sam is like a very decisive, very opinionated person, but he, his head lives in another dimension in a way that is so free of like expectation or obligation that it was just, it just seemed so liberating. The way he talked about the process was really exciting. You know, he's, he surrounded himself with filmmakers. He didn't surround himself with a bunch of TV people who do this every day and who know how to execute television in like an efficient and timely manner. He was surrounding himself with people that were creative and had ideas and were pushing the boundaries. And I think then I realized I was like, oh, there's a reason why he's talking to me. It's because like, I'm trying to do, do something different. And hopefully he noticed that. And, you know, as much as he was showing me cuts of other episodes, he was also like, listen, these are going to be your episodes and you should bring something to it. And he was constantly asking me, like, how would you do things differently? Hmm. How would you push it? How would you change it? You know, and that to me, the second he started asking me these questions and putting me on the spot, I was like, oh, OK, this is a situation I want to be in because he's auto he's instantly putting me in an uncomfortable situation. And those are the kind of situations I like to be in because that's when I get creative and that's when I start to, you know, mess around and mess around with my own expectations. You know, it's like coming, I was, I think the thing I was most hesitant about was coming into a situation where it's like, okay, it's the last two episodes of the show. I'm just going to be like kind of regurgitating what everyone else has done. But like yeah. he was, Sam was totally not interested in that. Obviously there are certain tools and certain like motifs that we're going to lean into and continue. But at the end of the day, he was totally open to pushing the boundaries. And as much as I tried to push the boundaries, he was doing it himself, you know, and really like he, he was the driving force of that of that show on all on all accounts yeah do you think that's the benefit then of of having multiple dps like in a in a season of a show is that you've got this like fresh you know new blood that's coming in that's kind of looking at it from in a different way and kind of exploring new ways to kind of perceive the action as it were yeah i think so i think it's i think it's totally um contingent on the project you know i've seen tv shows that i'm absolutely in love with that had one dp and you can tell that it was important there was one dp because that was the one thing that kind of carried throughout mm. the series that really like held it together and created a cohesion whereas with this i think it's the whole the whole show of the whole euphoria as a show is like sort of this collage of different human experiences and of different perspectives. So I think leaning into the collaborative nature of it and like 
different fresh perspectives was really helpful. Sure. And I guess like watching it, I've not, I've not read the scripts, but there are so many kind of moments in it where like the shot is the story mm-hmm. where it's, it's not just, you know, someone sitting on their bed, like, all right, let's just shoot coverage on this from a few different angles. Like the transition is the mood and is part of the episode. Totally. So I, I, I guess like, a lot of it in a way kind of came together when you were writing the shot list and thinking about it as opposed to just what was on the page. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the running joke with, you know, euphoria when we were shooting, it was that the shortest scenes always took the longest to shoot, Mm. which was actually (laughs) true. You know, there'd be a slug on a page that was literally, you know, you do the page count like, okay, this scene is three pages. This scene is a half a page. This scene is an eighth of a page. An eighth of a page is the shortest scene you can have. It's basically just a slug line with a line. You know, it's like, you know, Rue walks into her house. And that shot, that scene could be the scene that Sam cared the most about because he knew that it could tell the story in a visual way. And so, you know, when we were scheduling the shoot, it was impossible really to know. And we would, you know, we'd spend sometimes spend half a day on an eighth of a page, but then we turn around and spend two hours on three pages of dialogue because Sam really was not, you know, he wasn't interested in traditional coverage. I don't think there's not like a single scene I can think of in my two episodes where we just shot like shot reverse shot coverage. I don't think that Mm -hmm. ever happened. Um, And when we did, it was out of like pure necessity and it usually ended up getting cut up into a montage or into something that was more interesting than just cutting back and forth. Um, The tricky thing was that I came on pretty late to the game and so I had very little prep. Um, And even when I was prepping, Sam was still like directing and editing and writing other episodes. So I really didn't have much face time with him. So by the time it came, we had like one week of scouting for my two episodes. We scouted for a week. At the end of that week, Sam texted me and he said, hey, I rewrote our episodes. And this is a Sunday night, like the Sunday before we're supposed to start shooting on Monday. And so we ended up going down for a couple of days and kind of regrouping. And it wasn't like he totally changed them, but he kind of did totally change them. And the thing is, he changed them for the better and they they became much more amazing scripts. And that's kind of just how Sam works. Like I said, he works in kind of like a different dimension and he's just always thinking and always trying to make things better. So... Honestly, we showed up to set every day without a shot list and kind of without a schedule. Like we would know which scenes we needed to shoot, but we would just roll up and that's fucking crazy. So it was more it was, it was more like a, a sandbox that you were just like playing oh, around in this like totally. preordained master plan of like yeah yeah. And I think what's really interesting is that at first when I when it first started, I was like, this is so irresponsible and so <laughs> crazy, and how can this possibly be happening? But then. I started to realize that there was like a method to Sam's madness. And I think he could have been ready earlier. He could have shot listed with me. He could have like had the scripts ready, but to him, there's something to his process that it needs that spontaneity and that uncertainty and that lack of expectation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was, I think what he was doing was whether it was conscious or not, is he was, he was setting our, he was setting everyone up, like not just me, but like, the actors, the opera, like, you know, any other camera operators, the gaffer, the key grip, like everyone just had to be on their toes and on point because at any one moment, everything could change. Like every day when we walked into set, we'd spend the first hour of the day just like walking around the set and just being like, what if we did this? What if we did that? Mm. And like, you know, halfway through the morning, he'd be like, let's do this shot. And the key grip would be like, that's 600 feet of dolly track. 
which we don't have. <laughs> and Sam would be like, cool, shoot it after lunch. And the key grip would call and we would get 600 feet of dolly track delivered over lunch. And then they would set it up and we would shoot it. And like, what I started to realize is that this was just like how Sam needed to work. And it made the show what it is, which is this sort of like spontaneous collage of like human experience, especially yeah. like for te- for teenagers, like, you know, it just couldn't feel too constructed and it couldn't feel too preordained. And I really like as hard as it made it at times, it it is what made the show what it is. And like, you know, there'd be these days where shit just felt like it was running off the rails. Like the producers are coming up to us being like, what are you guys shooting? Like this isn't even on, like this isn't even scripted. And they look at the AD and the AD is just like shrugging. And you look over at Sam and he's just like sitting at the monitor and he has this smirk on his face. Like, you know, like, like he's, he's just in heaven, you know? And I think that's, I can really like respect that because he's, subverting a lot of the tropes of like making television which is that you're just like always on schedule you're always you always know exactly what you're doing there's a formula and everyone is just supposed to show up and stand on their marks and shoot it out and go home and that just wasn't how euphoria worked and i think like yeah go ahead yeah and like sorry and like how amazing and how rare to be able to do that like in what percentage of films or indie films or like tv shows do you get the the time to uh, you know or the producer's willingness to be like we're just going to fuck around and like, you know, do some crazy shit here rather than, you know, just like, get what we need. It's really totally. Like, that must have been yeah. so much fun. It was super fun. And I think like it was a bit, it was definitely an anomaly. And I don't know if that, how sustainable that process will be in the future of the show. But mm. um, I think it's something that Sam really fought for and he fought for in a really clever way um, that, just made the show what it is. And I think it was really unclear to a lot of the people sort of in charge at the show. But once they saw it, I think they started to understand, you know, what we were doing. Yeah. He must be a bit of a magician in the boardroom as well. Oh my God, for (laughs) sure. Sam, Sam is a, he's very shrewd. I'll just put it that way. And very strong willed. And it's like, for me, like that's the, that's the dream, the dream director to work with, you know, it's someone who like, will stick up for their vision, even if they don't know exactly what, even if they can't verbalize their vision, they're able to set an atmosphere that allows everyone to create it. Cause that's the trick too, is like as a director, like everyone's always looking to you for answers. And I understand how stressful that is. Like I'm around directors all the time and I see how that weighs on them. And it can be really inhibiting to the creative process when people are constantly asking you like, What's happening now? Who's doing what? You know, who's wearing what? Like, what is the production design? It's like, you know, Sam was really good about just setting a tone and a vibe so that people could kind of answer their own questions by taking yeah. the temperature of the set, you know? And he also just was really good at trusting people, you know? And we would design these shots. Some of these shots we did, I mean, every single day of the show, I was doing the most difficult shot of my life that I was thoroughly convinced was not possible. And my ACs would look at me and just shake their heads and be like, why are we even trying this? And Sam would just <laughs> sit there and be like, let's try it again. Let's try yeah. it again. And like, you have a little bit, of in, in, little bit of imposter syndrome there on set. Like everyone gets that. But when you're like, are we really going to do this? Can I like pull this off? <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, there were definitely certain moments where I think, you know, my crew would look at me and just be like, what are we doing? You know, how is this even possible? And, you know, I had an amazing crew that's like very seasoned. I had, you know, one of the best ace, first ACs in the business. I had, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's key grip, who's done like all of his stuff since Magnolia. You know, we had 
Danny Durr, who's like an incredible gaffer who's done, has worked under some of the best gaffers in the world and is now like becoming one of the best gaffers himself in the world. And like, they would look at, look at me and just be like, how, how could you have just said yes to what Sam requested? You know what I mean? Like something <laughs> like that, they would just shake their heads. And then everyone respected Sam enough that we would just put our nose to the grindstone and try to figure out a way to make it work. Hmm. And we would make it work and it would just be magic, you know? And it's like, we kept every single day we were proving ourselves wrong. And it was just this kind of like very frustrating and challenging, but like at the end, very sort of uh, um, satisfying and fulfilling shoot. Yeah. I think someone who had one of the toughest jobs on set was the focus puller. Yes. Judging from some of the shots, they were like yes. crazy. Yeah. Like yeah. really unsettling, like moving in and out a little bit. And yeah. it was just just amazingly well. Yeah, done. we were watching it just before speaking to you. We were rewatching the seventh episode and we we're like, What what even is in focus right now? Like the there's some crazy stuff going on with the lenses there. I don't know how much it, it that was, was happening in the camera and how much of it was post or like yeah, Norris Fox was the first AC on the entire season, and uh, he was incredible and hardly took marks ever. And we were shooting on the Alexa 65, which is large format. We were shooting on, we shot almost the entire show on the uh, 65 millimeter lens, um, which, and we were always shooting wide open at a 1.5. So when you think about that, a 65 millimeter lens is already fairly long. You know, in, in large format, it's not that, it's, it's not that tight of a lens, but it still equals to the same like uh, depth of field as a 65 millimeter lens on a you know 35 mm -hmm. millimeter format. So it's very shallow, insanely shallow depth of field. It's so shallow, yeah. Like someone's eye will be in focus, but that's it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean, literally, it was to the point where in a lot of shots, it was either the pupil or the eyelid was in focus. You know, it's like <laughs> you're like fine. It's literally that close, and the camera was never not moving. You know, we had all these shots, and it was always the mantra was always like faster and more energetic and more vibrant with the camera language. So we were always moving the camera as fast as we could um, and doing a lot of straight push-ins, which are the hardest for focus pullers. But Norris was just sort of like, had this sort of like Zen vibe and he was very calm and, you know, would ask for another take if he needed it. And I think everyone under, everyone understood what we were up against and what we were trying to do. And I, I was really grateful that, the actors were so understanding. Um, they were really patient with us, you know. Like I said, some of these scenes would be an eighth of a page and it would just be a character walking, but it would be the sh hardest shot of the day. And these actors mm -hmm. would just do it again and again and again without complaining, without rolling their eyes. They would, they totally understood what we were going for and they understood that the camera was telling the story as much as anything else. And so they were really respectful, which I think is another thing that, as I come up in the industry, it's, it's, it's what makes filmmaking difficult. Like it was really easy when I was making tiny indie movies with, um, you know, actors that were up and coming and really hungry. It was really easy to try to do complicated things because they were patient and they were understanding. But like when you get to these bigger projects with actors that, you know, are incredible and totally understand that you're trying to do something aesthetically creative, they're used to a certain level of efficiency and a certain level of like time respect. That means that, you know, when this person walks on set, you have to be ready to roll, you have to be lit, and you have to be, get them in and out of that shot as soon as possible. And if they're not speaking on camera, they're even more eager to be done with the scene. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's a lot, there's so much pressure with that. Yeah, like often when I like working with actors as well, like they're not 
obviously they're not going to be experts in cameras. So like they, they tend to know, you know, this is the close up, etc. But like, I guess they have to kind of trust you when you're doing some really out there stuff because they don't know exactly how it's going to look and what, yeah. what the camera is really going to be focusing on. Totally. Um, and I think, I think one thing is that like this, the whole filmmaking process around euphoria was actors, all the actors were all, you know, most of them are very young and like also super talented and also un, like new, had good taste. And so a lot of times they would want to see the monitor after a take or they would want to go and look and be like, okay, what's the shot? What are you guys doing? Oh my God, that mm. looks amazing. Okay. I understand why we're doing 70 takes of the <laughs> shot. Like, let's keep yeah. doing it. You know what I mean? Like there was this, this shared enthusiasm for the, for the thing we were making. It wasn't just about them and capturing their performance. It was about the whole world of euphoria and making it this sort of collaborative experience. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were watching a, there was a, a scene we were watching earlier, I think it's where Rue's like visiting her drug dealer when he's like looking after his mum. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were like, the the bookcase on the far left is in focus right now. The characters are completely out. And it just, it just, <laughs> it works. It's like, yeah, I don't know. It just must, it was a lot of, you could tell there's like a lot of confidence that like we can just let it be, be weird. And like, yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think also part of it is just those lenses we were using were, fairly soft and fairly new and the technology is still getting worked out of it. So like, you know, the, the focal plan was always like a little bit weird and, uh, you know, you're also just moving fast. And so there are certain like creative decisions that are made in the moment that just kind of happen, you know? But yeah, it was, yeah. it was really cool to, to watch Thank it you. from the cinematography point of view. And, and cool. there were just loads of talking points that we had. Yeah, yeah. there's one thing um, I posted it on Instagram the other day. Like, the, I think your gaffer like took some BTS of it of um, the scene where it go it transitions from the classroom to it's one of those things like you were saying where this the line in the script was probably Rue falls backwards on her bed and it would have been so easy for you to just in post just go we're in a classroom totally. now here's Rue falling down now we're in school but like the decision that it was a really I guess Sam and you like a really clear thought that no we need to do this practically and we're going to fucking build a classroom over here and build a school <laughs> over here and make it happen yeah no that was really cool that was that was uh, Sam's idea from the beginning I mean the concept for the shot was his idea and that he really wanted I don't know if you guys have ever seen this movie called One from the Heart it's from the 80s and it's really amazing and they use a lot of these theatrical scrims in the movie you should totally check it out it's a beautiful film um but sam had seen that and you know he had had this idea to use theatrical scrims in some way in the show because you know throughout the show you're constantly like kind of shifting perspective and also kind of you know i think sam was always building this world that you know you would see something through someone's eyes especially rue's eyes and you would take it at face value but then realize that she's on drugs you know or that she's just daydreaming or like, you know, it was always about kind of upending the perspective and making you think differently about these very simple human emotions, which I think as a teenager is what you're constantly going through is that, you know, every hardship you face as a teenager is like a life and death earth shattering thing. And I think that's kind of what we wanted to do. So he really wanted to do this thing with scrims and then we figured out this scene would be a perfect way to do it. Um, And yeah, it was super complicated. And again, it was like an eighth of a page, but it was really about, capturing Rue in that moment as a teenager, which like when I shot, after I shot that scene, I was like, I, I know exactly what this feels like. I had this feeling when I was in high school and I know exactly what she's thinking right now. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you're surrounded by the world, but you feel completely and utterly alone and you just want to be next to the person that you care about most, but like you don't know how to communicate that. And I think that like Sam yeah. and I were able to kind of find that through that shot. 
And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Because like all of this stuff is obviously super technical and it's not stuff like your casual viewer will be thinking about. But like ultimately it's all in service of this mood of like everything being blurry as if like you're on Xanax yourself and everything's totally. kind of unreal. And that's what it's all about. Totally, totally, yeah. I guess you, I mean, when it when it went out, I mean, obviously there's so much talent involved. Like you've got like Drake executive producing it, Zendaya starring it. You must have, you know, known there was going to be a lot of interest, but... I wonder how you were feeling about it, like when you'd finished this super weird, interesting shoot, like how you thought it would go down or like, and how, yeah. that, and how it ultimately did versus like what you were expecting. I mean, I think it, I had faith that it would be something amazing um, just from having worked on it for so long. I think I had never done TV before, but to me, TV feels like a bit safer and that you sort of know people are going to see it. Whereas every project I've done up until then has been like an indie movie that at the end of the day, it could just premiere at a small festival and then just sort of disappear into the ether. And yeah. literally like 400 people could see it. Like that's possible for an indie movie, unfortunately. And that's, that's happened to me. And it's like, you know, when, if someone knows who I am in the industry at this point, they're like, oh, he's the guy who shot Euphoria. And like, yeah. maybe they know about Last Black Man in San Francisco. But like what they don't know yeah. is like, I've been shooting movies for years and like trying to make stuff and just like hustling and grinding. And I'm super proud of a lot of the stuff I work on and I love it. And some of it I don't love as much, but like, I love it for what it was and the experience I had and what I learned from it. But um, but with this, it was like after I finished it, there was just so much like love and heart behind it, more than even just knowing the people that were in it. I was I just like I knew that there was never really I had never really been a sh something exactly like this before. And whether it was it spoke directly to me, which I don't know that it totally did. Um, I felt something from it. And I was also really impressed by like the people that it did touch, like the amount of adults that were so into the show. And I'm like. I was kind of expecting it would just be like teenagers who were really into it, but there's a, you know, it really spans a lot of different, uh, yeah. <laughs> audiences. Did you see, did you see the thing with DiCaprio? No. Uh, so he was like on the a red carpet at some awards and they were like, what are you oh, watching right yeah, now? Yeah, he was yeah, like, yeah. the show Euphoria, man. It's so yeah, great. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I, th I think, um, if you can take a concept that, you know, like, like, as you said before, like you even thought, oh, you know, it's a teenage story, you know, it's been done before, but if you can take something that people already have a preconception of what it's going to be and it's something that relates to everyone because most of us have been teenagers before um, and <laughs> yeah. then do it so radically differently, that that can be a huge punch in the face to viewers. Totally. I think in a way that other shows that may have crazier scripts and, you know, set in a you know, different planet, whatever, don't have that same kind of punch. Yeah. No, I think that's that's true. And I think that's kind of what I realized after f working on it for so long was that we were trying to do something different. I also just realized that after we did it that no one knew what was coming. You know, there was something really cool about that, that after we I finished my two episodes, I was just like, no one knows what's going to hit them once these two episodes drop, you know, that I worked on. Mm. And I was that was super exciting for me is that. Because at the point that I was shooting mine, there was already a lot of buzz around the show and people kind of were hearing things and seeing things. and There were trailers out and things like that. But then once I saw the other episodes compared to what my two episodes were going to be, that was even more exciting because we got, we really got to play in my two episodes and we really pushed the boundaries. And I think 
the show had kind of hit its stride a little bit by the time I was shooting. And so everyone was sort of firing on all cylinders and really able to just like bring a lot to the last two episodes. Yeah. That's quite a fun moment, isn't it? Where like you've got something in the, in the can, like whatever a project is. And it's like this like potential energy where like, you know, like this shit is fucking great. And like, people don't even know yet. It's, yeah. Like, it's a really like exciting no, it's, moment. Especially it's with like what you did in the, in episode eight with the whole kind of big crescendo music video, we kind of ending and stuff. Yeah. Which was such a difficult thing to pull off, but we, we made it happen. <laughs> yeah. How did you smoke out a whole street? Yeah. Uh, we had an amazing special effects team that was there, you know, every single day. And that, so the last, that last scene of her dancing in the street is like a, is a back lot. Um, so we had like full access to all the houses and like all the property behind the houses. And they basically were just, they laid like just tubes and like the, I don't know if you've ever used, like seen a tube of, they're called tubes of death. And basically it's a, (laughs) it's a long, you basically just buy plastic tubing and it just comes in a roll and then you like you attach it to the end of a fan you turn the fan on and the fan just inflates it and you poke holes along it and this tube can be like 500 feet long and then there's a fan inflating it and then you just blow smoke into the fan and the fan blows smoke throughout the entire tube so you can run it run tubes down like an entire stretch behind houses and it'll just create that sort of like low-lying haze that just drifts through the trees that is fucking wild oh, i need one of them yeah yeah and then on top of that you know they have like handheld <laughs> foggers and then other foggers i mean we would have like eight foggers you know on some sets it was just it was like absolute yeah. insanity it's got to be a fun instruction she just fo- fog the entire place yeah <laughs> it's a good day on set when you get to do yeah that. i mean it was it was hilarious i mean i mean the the crew shirt actually like for the production would just send more haze on it and that was like the thing because <laughs> that was just there was never not there was never it's enough like haze on set. yeah and we would you know we would walk on to set every morning and before we even walk into the state like we were shooting on big stages like a lot of the sets were built and these these stages are huge they're sizes of like football fields and or more you know bigger than that and they would just be hazing it up like before we even walked in. So like you walk in and it's just, there's like, you know, you would take, if you took a flash photo, you would not see anything because it would just be reflecting mm. haze. Like it was ridiculous mm. how much haze was on set. Even in like pre-fog, you know, it'd be a scene of like, <laughs> yeah. it'd be like, it would be a scene of like Rue, like passing out from like, like ODing in her bathroom. And there would be like so much haze that you would have to like, be like, okay, wait, we can't use that take because you can actually see the smoke moving in the air. You know, <laughs> it was just like, you'd always have to like, oh, yeah, let the I've haze been settle. there. Like I'm, I'm yeah. a fan of haze myself. There and, you go. Uh, That's I've, the... I've had that problem in post where you're like, well, shit, there's not much we can do about yeah. the fact that it looks like this place is on fire right now. <laughs> exactly. Which is, which happens a lot in the show. And you know, I think normally would kind of bug me, but it's one of those things where once you build a language and you sort of gain the audience's trust, mm. they sort of forget about all the, all that stuff. Yeah, you can just lean into it. Yeah. That's the magic of filmmaking is once you can like establish a world that the viewer wants to like engage in and participate in, you can kind of do whatever the fuck you want because they trust you. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's that's like the that's what you strive for is to make mm. you know create a world that's so singular and crazy but is still trusted by the audience and still something they want to be a part of that. Like you can really just go for it. You can just fuck with it. It kind of takes the pressure off you That's as well. Once you've established right that. Right yeah, yeah. It's like, it's this, the sooner <laughs> you can close. do that. Yeah. And I think Sam was really smart about doing that in the pilot. The pilot is crazy. You know, they did a lot in the pilot yeah. to just totally, totally skew the world so that, you know, when you come back for more, you, you, you expect that you expect that level of insanity and you expect that sort of spontaneity and, 
surreal surreal surrealism i don't know yeah surrealism yeah that's the one yeah surreality surreality could be a thing as well we can make we can make that work yeah I mean, bef- you should have had T-shirts with that on as well. Yeah, you should just for season two, just get yeah, reality on a T-shirt. I'm gonna make those shirts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, just before we come out of like the Euphoria K hole, because I could obviously talk about the show for like eight hours. Um, yeah, totally right. But like, obviously, we've uh, it's such an incredible experience. But like, what was the what was the worst day where it was just really hard? And it the was worst like- day, I mean, I worst is like I won't use that word because like every day I'm on set is a day that like I don't know I feel like very very like lucky to be able to do what I do. And I never want to complain. One of the hardest days I think was, um, in episode seven, um, Fesco goes in, um, robs the doctor's house. I don't know if you remember that scene. He goes and he, yeah, yeah. Towards the end, breaks into his house and like knocks him out, uh, and steals all the money. Which is like, and it is actually like part of a montage. And it's again, it's one of those things where that was like a really heavy dialogue scene. And there was a lot of blocking um, and there was a lot of like cross coverage that needed to happen to tell the story. Um, but, you know, that's just like not the show's strong suit. You know, we got really bogged down trying to shoot coverage when like Sam really wasn't interested in shooting coverage, but we needed to tell the story. And the other challenging part is that we were shooting it like coming into the spring when nights were getting shorter and shorter. And we had, you know, we were shooting on a practical location, which made it even more difficult. Most of the interiors in the show are built and they're built in such a way where walls can come apart, ceilings can come out, um, you know, sets can actually like physically spin around, like things like that, that allow you to just do these insane shots that are just born out of Sam's mind. And this scene, this scene was a practical mansion, which wasn't necessarily our first choice of location. And it had a lot of like rules like things we couldn't do and it was also there's just only certain ways we could light it because it was a practical location we couldn't be like hanging lights everywhere and like you couldn't take the roof off yeah exactly so there were those limitations that like sam couldn't just turn any one direction and he couldn't necessarily do the shot in a one or like he would want to do so it just became this thing of like us actually having to sit down and do a shot list, which was the I, the only time I remember doing a shot list. And we didn't do it until lunchtime. The first half of the day we were doing it without a shot list and it was just kind of a mess. And it was You're really like, frustrating. We probably need one of those, yeah. And then, and then by the time lunch rolled around, I was like, dude, we have to make a shot list because like we have four more hours of nighttime before it gets light out. And we have, we had an entire night exterior to do before, after we shot the interior. And it also included small children and an actor like an adult actor who had never been on the show before. So it was like this kind of like perfect storm of all the things that Sam was sort of trying to avoid in his shoot, which was like using a lot of children, using a lot of like kind of actors that aren't, that play bit parts. You know, he was really good about like always using the same characters so that we really got to like get to know them and they knew what they were doing on set. So like it just became really challenging. And at at the end of it, like our night exterior basically became a sunrise shot because we ran out of time inside and had to like rush outside and shoot, you know, a hundred foot long techno crane shot and a steady cam shot and all this handheld stuff in literally 60 minutes, which we somehow pulled off. But um, we were just like totally fighting this on the entire time. But that was that was like the hardest day that I remember. Well, I mean, I guess. It's such a great thing, but like you can, from what you're saying, you know, like Sam, the fact that like how much fondness he has for old cinema and like such a, a grounded, like technical knowledge, that's what enables you to be so free, isn't it? Like having that behind you, I guess. Yeah. And he also like, he sympathized, you know, he, he would see that he had set us up for a really difficult shot and he would be really patient. 
you know if we weren't nailing it he wouldn't be he wouldn't be freaking out why aren't we nailing this he'd be like okay either a let's keep trying it or b let's change it so we can accomplish it and usually it was let's keep trying it until we get it which somehow magically we were able to execute most of the stuff we were trying to do but he was he was really reasonable in that sense and he had a lot of respect for like everyone and i think also because of that the crew really respected him and wanted to deliver which i think is really cool because i think a lot of times directors whether intentionally or not don't know a lot about a lot of the more technical aspects of filmmaking and so they don't understand why things are taking long or they don't understand why this like a specific shot is so difficult to pull off that seems really simple um and the fact that sam understood all of that and sympathized with it and respected the and like congratulated the crew on these really difficult tasks they worked their ass off for him it was interesting to see because in the first couple of weeks I would get frustrated not having a shot list and trying to do all these things, which I thought were kind of impossible. And then looking over at my crew who just had their nose down and were just like doing it, you know? And I was just like, I was so impressed that Sam had built an environment that created that sort of vibe that I was like, okay, I just have to jump on board. I think that's like, that's the sort of leadership that a show like that needs, you know? Sure. That first season was like a real learning process. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, and I think that HBO had no idea what they were getting themselves into. And that's why that show is so good. You know what I mean? I think Sam kind of took them for a ride, but it was yeah. to the, it was like completely to their benefit and they're lucky that he did. And so it's that's like, what you have to do as a director. You have to like, just basically hoodwink them, con yeah. them into making something. <laughs> and then they'll be surprised when they're like, Oh shit, it's actually pretty good. Exactly. <laughs> so I think that's like, you know, the next season will be kind of like a, It'll pop. There's, you know, everyone's coming back to with a bit more knowledge of what to expect. So it's like everyone will have their demands in there, whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the good guys can win sometimes, (laughs) still as well. Exactly. It's not all. It's not all corporate. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Totally. Totally. Yeah. So I guess like to to bring it kind of full circle as we start to like close. We started this talking about like the different kind of paths forward, and like now you're at this point where. Uh, like I know you just did Last Black Man in San Francisco and that's like gone down really well but like mm-hmm. we're at this such a weird moment in time now where it's like film is having this weird moment TV's like really coming into its own mm-hmm. you know there's still music videos there's still commercials like how are, you, how are you thinking about all of those forks that are ahead for you and balancing that and all that kind of stuff yeah it's it's tricky for sure I mean it can be a little discouraging at times to see my friends who have incredible scripts and who are incredible storytellers who I believe in that are having the hardest time making their tiny movies when I'm getting scripts for like studio franchise movies that are spending tens of millions of dollars and the script reads like it was written in a week. And it's like, it can be really frustrating. And I think for me, like, I don't want to talk shit on anything, but like, I'm, I am really curious to see like, how film evolves because I feel like there are just fewer risks being taken. Yeah. And it's sort of this thing of like this formula being developed for how a movie can be successful and make its money back and make enough money to keep people afloat. And I think there's actually a lot of interesting stuff going on in television. And I never really saw saw myself as like a TV DP. And I think that's something very specific to my generation of cinematographers. I think younger cinematographers are excited about shooting TV because they see shows like Euphoria or like Atlanta or like, I don't know. I don't watch, I honestly don't watch very much TV at all. Like I, I probably, I I could, the amount of shows that I've watched, I could count on like my fingers, you know, but, um, 
I'm starting to get a lot more interested in television because I think a there's like bigger risks being taken and B it's just the narratives that you can create and weave are like in some ways a lot more interesting than film. Um, it's really cool that you can, a character can have one arc, not only one arc, but multiple arcs through a season. And, you know, you can introduce new characters really mm -hmm. late in the season. You can do a lot more narratively, which like to, for me as a cinematographer, I can do a lot more. I can really like explore and have fun. Um, Euphoria was a bit of an anomaly, I think, because we had a lot more time to shoot than most television shows and there was a lot of creative freedom. But I think that's kind of the direction that television is going to take. And I'm excited for that. And I will always keep making movies and movies are like why I got into this. And I love this singular. I think what I love about films is that there's this sort of singular nature to them. And that's what gets me really excited about them. But I think TV is I'm, I'm like slowly opening up to television. Um, yeah. And it, like yeah, you know, it's, it's where the, like you say, it's where the risks are being taken. So it makes sense totally. that that's where like one will gravitate. And I, I see your point as well that I, I was thinking about this the other day that like in a film, often you have a responsibility to be, you've got to be showing characters and you've got to see their face because you're still establishing them and getting to know them. Mm -hmm. But like once you're like seven episodes into a TV show and everyone knows everyone involved, you can, you can take more risks because you haven't got to worry about like, the the viewer being really on top of they they know these people already they don't need totally. to see their face and you can they can be in silhouette or whatever and that's fine so that's kind of fun I guess as well yeah yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, glad exactly. you, I'm glad you name checked uh, Atlanta because that's my my favorite show yeah I mean that like I mean I watched Atlanta a couple of years ago and I just I hadn't really watched a lot of television and I just instantly had more faith in TV than I'd ever had when I saw that show um, yeah think, for like on a lot of levels and. Um, there's a lot of other shows doing amazing work, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that, I think that they're like, we're at like a definitely at a crossroads. And I think, I think filmmaking has always been at a crossroads. It's just, it's, it's kind of like politics, right? It's like, we always feel like things are at its worst moment, but I think that's just like how art is in general. It's like, we're always just trying to figure out how it adapts to the world we're in. It's interesting. I mean, I'm lucky because I shoot a lot of commercials, and I do some music videos and I have, I have other work that kind of keeps me afloat that allows me to be really picky about the narrative work that I do. And I think I'm really grateful for, for that so that I can really like, I'm not taking narrative work because I need to like feed my family, but I'm doing it because it's like the story that I need to tell, you know? Yeah. But no, yeah, I agree. Like people always catastrophize in the moment and like, yeah, it's a weird time for film. And yeah, I wish there were more bigger budgets for things that aren't Marvel movies, but like, yeah, there's still a lot of exciting stuff going on, and it's not totally. always as dark as people like people make out. No, it's like as long as as long as movies should exist, they will exist, and like I think yeah. that's that's something that like they may just exist in a different, slightly different way, but like people are gonna keep making movies, and like some of the most amazing movies are gonna be movies that were made on a shoestring budget by a first time filmmaker, um, and it is hard to see. Like you know, I was thinking about a specific director this morning when I woke up and I was like, man, I love that director's work and I'm so bummed that they're doing a Marvel movie right now because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want them to be making, but like that being said, like that's that director's truth. And like they, if they need, if they need to keep making good movies, they will. And they're going to come back to yeah. it. And like, I trust yeah, yeah. that like the people I respect most will always come back to it. And it's like, maybe that person doesn't have another good movie in them and they're just going to keep doing Marvel movies and that makes space for someone else to come up and make an indie movie. I don't know. It's like, 
I can't ever, I don't know. I'm, I'm like done judging people and their career trajectories. It's just, everyone's just gotta be Yeah, yeah, like some get. people do commercials and music videos to support them. Some will do like a massive, you know, Marvel movie and then that's exactly. freedom. It's just a different approach, yeah. Exactly, and especially like if, as a director, if you're coming from a place where you're like, you've been grinding for years and years and like being totally broke, it's like, and you get a huge break to shoot a huge studio movie, like good on you. You get to like, <laughs> like make some money for once, you know, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. Know. So it's like, I... I can't really judge you. I don't know where, you know, I don't know anyone's story and what their internal narrative is. So it's like, you just have to like go with it and, and like trust that people will continue to make movies no matter how hard it is. Sure. Is there anything else, Alan, you want to talk about? Or are you... oh, I'm happy. No. I think that was brilliant. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for your time, Adam. It's so fascinating yeah, to talk yeah. to you. And... For sure. I hope I, I hope I didn't ramble too much. Sorry. I, no, I tend, no, no, not at all. Honestly, it was great. No, you really don't. And um, no, yeah, rab- just, rambling is good. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> it, me- it means you're passionate. For sure. <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah, and excited to see what you cook up next. And um, yeah, yeah. me too.